Welcome to episode 194 of The Sleeper in the Bus, coming to you on a President's Day Monday. Jason Collette and Paul Spohr here. Jason, how are you? Late hits now, whore ads. Uh, I'm still <laughs> laughing from last night's Saturday Night Live. That, that Jeopardy skit great. was just fantastic. It was great. They still they still had the fastball working. Really, really liked it. Uh just a great a great whole episode i really thought the whole thing was really good really well done and um and jim carrey doing uh matthew mcconaughey was killed it unbelievable unbelievable i love the commercials when he did it i'm glad they brought it back they realized how good that was a lot of really good stuff on there i didn't realize the californians was so popular that they would kind of do a, a fresh one with it but even that made me laugh a bit the way they kind of do the over the top uh, Valley Girl accents uh, to the oh my point God. where oh my God. you right. can't even understand right. them. It's so it, it was good. It, I really it was. enjoyed the whole show. Indeed. However, that we have some baseball to talk. We got to get back on track. Got to get off the comedy train here and start talking baseball. Didn't record yesterday, but that's all right because we had the we had the holiday. You had the holiday. Made it easy to record today. And obviously, the big talk the last week or so, going on a week tomorrow, has been the labor mix draft that we were part of. We we, we were. We were the third pick, co-owning a, a club there, drafted a dominant team, obviously. We'll, we'll get into that. But um, I just want to start with an overview. How did the draft strike you? It's obviously a very early draft, which kind of, you know, it sets the tone, but it's also, you know, going to be way different than anything you're going to see you know, a month from now, heck, even a couple weeks from now, I think there'll be massive differences with pitchers and catchers reporting, and then the position players starting to come in. But how did the draft strike you right off the top? You know, what? one of the things that really stood out to me, nine starting pitchers went in the first uh, top 50 picks. Do you think we influenced that? I'd like to think so, taking Kershaw third overall, but Kershaw, Sale, uh Hernandez, Kluber, Bumgarner, Granky, Price, Cueto, and I'm sorry, it's 10, uh, and Darvish. So I had 10 pitchers. I missed Price on the first pass through. But, yeah, we're looking – that many pitchers went early on, and that was a bit of a surprise. Uh, even somebody like Felix Hernandez, always a big knock, and we've talked about this, that you know the wins have always been the struggle, but it's an improved ball club this year. And then, then he falls even further, and we even passed on him because Josh Donaldson was there, and we never th- we, we weren't going to take Kershaw and Felix back to back. It would have been crazy talk. Would have been interesting, but it really would have been crazy talk. But we never expected Josh Donaldson to fall to us. But Felix Fernandez nearly made it out of the second round, and that's crazy talk. That was interesting. And uh, Fred Zinke, who you know, believe it or not, we were engaged in in some potential trade talks with moments after the draft, posed a question to us that I think is an interesting one. If we had known that Hernandez would have been there available in the second round, which it's impossible to know, there's no way we would have expected it. Early ADPs don't suggest it. Um, any rankings that you see don't really suggest that he would have been there. But if we had known, would we have then switched up and maybe gone with? Stanton, who we talked about uh, on Sunday before the draft uh, on the podcast, or actually that was recorded Saturday, um, you know, somebody like that, and then gone Felix. How do you feel about that? I mean, it's such a hypothetical because, like I said, there's no possible way of knowing, but if you could change that, would you go Stanton Felix over Kershaw Donaldson? Yeah, I think I may have. I, I think I may have, but then if you know if we take Stanton third, does Felix make it back? Because somebody else may take Kershaw down the line. I don't know, because exactly. you look at some of the other picks. 
there were just a few like the Hamilton thing going Hamilton going twentieth overall. I don't think anybody for, uh, saw that coming. No, so that uh, was a surprise. You know, and, and from Fangrass's Mike Podhorser, he defends that on the, on the website, so you can see his full defense of mm-hmm. that. Uh, but yeah, I think I think too many things would have changed, so it's really difficult hypothetical. I think I stick with what we got though, because Kershaw, or excuse me, Donaldson falling to us, uh, that's another guy who should have been long gone. I think by the time we picked, I think that you can make a, a decent case for him as a, a late first rounder, but definitely an early second rounder. So I loved getting him late second round. Dude, if we were picking on the wheel, I would have been hammering to take Donaldson at sixteen, right? I would, I would have, I would have agreed. It wouldn't have even been a tough sell because I think you're talking about a guy who, even before the move to Oakland, so good, or the move from Oakland, uh, now going into Toronto, much better park. People talk about the turf. Okay, I get that. That could be a little bit of an issue, but I think the offense that boost that he can get from that ballpark, from leaving Oakland to going to Toronto, it's more than offsets any sort of injury risk uh, by potential by the turf. I think one of the things that kind of stood out towards the uh, towards the back half of the draft was you know all of uh, I'm looking at oh uh, from pick uh, let's see that was four five six from pick seven to fifteen every single one of those guys doubled up on offense with the first two picks oh wow every single that. one of them did and then going into the next round um. The Craig Glazer and Corey Schwartz doubled up on pitching with Grinke and, and Chapman, and then Bobby Colton went with Cueto and Darvish. But the other, and then uh, James Quintong took Price. But for the most part, like the four of those seven teams doubled up on hitting again. And in fact, it wasn't until uh, round five that Ray Murphy from Baseball HQ took his first pitcher, and it was a closer at that. Uh, Jake Seeley, who spent most of last year snaking us, took Jordan Zimmerman in the fifth round. And uh, uh, Podhorser took Hamels uh, with his first pick. And then um, the, the guys at Baseball Prospectus took Adam Wainwright, which uh, really raised my eyebrows as a, as a first pitcher pick, given what we've talked about with Wainwright. And both of us are on the same page with uh, concerns about him. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, do, I definitely have concerns because – you know, I think I think there's some good news that came out the other day with regards to his to his injury status. That doesn't change my my feeling that much, though. I think uh, I right. heard Stefania Bell was on the SiriusXM, you know, kind of giving him a, a decent, clean bill of health. Uh, she's the injury expert over at ESPN, and I think that was changing the tune for some folks. Obviously, this was before our draft. I, I still don't see it because you're betting on his game is volume. He needs to be in that 220 innings to kind of make up for the fact that his strikeout rate, you know, really fell off last year and and, and wasn't necessarily special before that. 8.2 strikeouts per nine in 2013. It's not bad by any stretch, but it's not ace-like with all the other guys striking out a batter per nine. But he gets 219 strikeouts because he threw 242 innings that year. So now you need Wainwright to go another he went 227 innings last year, 179 strikeouts. What if he only goes 190 this year? Could and get could strikes st- out 150. Yeah, could still get good ratios. I'm not suggesting that he completely falls off and sucks, but as an ace. And and the bigger bummer, at least for me, with regards to looking at the BP club, is they the or, or maybe it's not even a bummer. It's it's kind of a save. Is that they backed it up brilliantly. As much as I don't like the Wainwright pick, I equally love the Cole, Arietta, DeGrom trio. So right. if I do have some worries about Wainwright, I think they covered it nicely. But in my opinion, I say just scrap that Wainwright pick, pound another offensive guy maybe with with Blackman, which I can give or take. Either way, I'm not really sold on him. 
But if you're now going five offense and then Cole Arietta Degrom, I think you're in a perfectly great position. Yeah. So, uh, did you have any picks that you looked at and you said, you know what, I really like that pick? Like, I'm sure there are some, but n- name a couple that you looked at and you're like, damn, that was a good pick. Um, we, we you know we both groaned when Erickson took Jay Happ in the 25th round. He's a lock for the rotation. Mm-hmm. Uh, McClendon's already said it; he's going to be in the rotation. So, you know, I like that because he's going to be a four starter for them. You know, around 25, that was really sweet. That was a. You know, David Freeze falling to round 26 was a, a decent pickup down that late. I found, you know, the, we talked about in draft that the depth at third base was uh, rather surprising compared to what things have been in the last couple of years. So that was nice. Uh, the TJ House pick late yes. by Jake Seeley was a nice grab uh, on him. Those are kind of three that stood out late. I like those. And obviously, you know, like I said, we, or like you said, we had the we had the together we were like dang it about half because i know it sounds like a name that you wouldn't necessarily be that interested in but you talk about a ballpark move in his favor going from toronto to seattle he's done some decent things throughout his career and he's finally in a park that can 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 kind of cover some mistakes instead of continually exposing them you know he, he starts well, you know with, the funny thing sorry to step but you know the funny thing if you look at his splits last year he was better at home Oh, that is crazy! I didn't know that he sucked. He sucked at road. So you know, when you look at his home road splits last year, it w- it was a better situation for him at home. I remember uh, looking at that last week and saying, "Wow, that's uh, not what I expected." No. But that is what's. But I still like the pro. You know, velocity. He's had a velocity bump a little bit uh, along that line. So it's just something when I look at him, he intrigues me. Uh, and um, you know, that's one really one of the things I wanted to to look at for him and say, okay. You know, we looked last year at home. We look at 2014. He made 15 starts at home, or 15 games last year. Won seven of them. 315 ERA, 116 WHIP. Then you look on the road. 567 ERA, 158 WHIP, uh, and was uh, four and six. So it's not what you would have expected at all. So I think you know the move over there to uh, Seattle, somewhat tempered by the fact that if he could succeed in Rogers Center, he should definitely succeed in Safeco. But how much more, how much growth opportunity is there given what he did in Rogers Center last year? I'm more concerned about, you know, the good thing is Oakland should be a great fit for him when he's on the road. Yeah, uh, Houston, not so much. That's where you know, if, I could, if I'm looking at the start and I've got a two-start week and one of his starts is in Houston, probably going to sit him because that's really not a good situation for him. Uh, and then Anaheim's a neutral park, and that's one that, that should play in his favor. Yeah, homers have always been an issue for Jay Happ. And so, like you said, with Houston and probably even Texas, I know Texas is kind of smoothing out um, a little bit because I think they changed some of the structural work that killed some of the jet stream. Uh, Correct. But I still don't necessarily want a Jay Happ there because I think that offense is going to be much better this year once healthy again. So, yeah, when you're, when you're talking about him, if he's doing that Texas two-step where they're, where they're playing a, a full week uh, against those two clubs – yeah. I don't think you want to start him in either of those in, in either of those ballparks. But Jay Happ is somebody that you can look at later on that that uh, you could be interested in. A couple other picks that I liked late: uh, Mike Podhorzer, Carlos Rodon. We both were like, yeah. we we did not we missed the boat there. We were not thinking about him, and we really should have been because we were looking for a late high upside arm. We got Ruby De La Rosa and Daniel Norris, but let's be honest, Rodon would have been bo- better than both in terms of that one of those late picks that yeah you could end up cutting by by. Tax day, April fifteenth, but it could also pan out very nicely. We've obviously. I'm very surprised he stayed around that long. I, I, mean, I couldn't believe 20, it. Twenty eighth round. I mean, we all kind of overlook. I I tend to do that 
Uh, you know, I'm, I'm more worried. I'm looking at the now. Who can help me right now? Who can I start streaming right now? That kind of thing. So I usually uh, shoot those kind of picks and be like, eh, whatever. But I just the fact that he fell to the 28th round. I mean, Matt Moore was drafted ahead of him, a guy that's not going to pitch for two months into the season and is coming off an injury. But he was drafted over Carlos uh, Rodon, and I'm like, okay, what's you know that that's one of the things you looked at. Brett Anderson, a guy that can't stay healthy. Wada, a guy that can't stay healthy. You know, they're looking at a lot of pitchers around him. And I'm like, okay, if, you know, Aaron Loop, if you're going to spit on saves and try to speculate saves, although I don't think he's going to be a, a guy to pick up any there, you know, he ends up going. Um, and that's it. And then Hudson, and Tim Hudson, uh, and actually ended up going before Carlos Renan. Yeah. And- I just the upside there is substantial with a decent bet. Again, we're not necessarily talking about a guy who's going to be down until June. He could be, but there's also legitimate talk that he could break camp. You know, that fifth spot's definitely not locked down with Hector Noesi, but Carlos Rodon could also break in kind of the uh, Johan Santana way through the bullpen. So he could start the season in the bullpen. I don't think Dan Jennings is necessarily automatically the second lefty there with Zach Duke. So they could put Rodon there, give him some of those two, three inning stints, and then work him in as their, uh, as a spot becomes available because John Danks is not the rock solid guy either. So the back two spots of the White Sox bullpen, or excuse me, rotation, and we'll talk about it more in our team team preview of the AL Central those could be open so that was a good pick um, you know a handful of others that, that I really liked uh, I thought Matt Kane in the 17th round was a uh, decent bet there I think he, he could rebound um, you know I could go through a lot but we, I think I mentioned a bunch within my review of our draft were there uh, I want to talk a bit about a couple other things first off I thought that the whole crew all, all 15 of us um, showed some restraint with the baby cubs uh, yeah. The first one was Jorge Soler in the tenth round. He went to Podhorzer. That was, I thought that was a great pick. Chris Bryant went right after. So you know, kind of, it was almost like a closer sort of thing where that first closer goes, then they open kind of the floodgates because once Soler went, Bryant goes the very next pick to Jake Seeley, Javier Baez in round thirteen, and then we jumped on Arismendi Alcantara in the eighteenth round. Obviously, he is a he is definitely a level lower than those three, and that's why we were able to get him so much later. But how did you feel about how the baby Cubs were treated? after some some pretty massive uh, off-season hype. Yeah, I, I'm surprised they all lasted, you know, they didn't go in the first nine rounds. At least, you know, Soler or Brian, I thought they may go around earlier based on uh, the hype around him. And then Baez and finally went in the 13th. You're like, okay, you know, there's such a risk with him. He could hit 25, 30 bombs, or he could hit 190. A thing with him, and I'm glad... I think this may, you know, if, if the... Uh, I, I don't want to say the normal room, but, you know, if if... Uh, non-published writers, I'll put it that way, if non-published writers look at this and say, okay, Baez is going in the 13th round of a 15-team draft, and I believe that's much lower than his ADP. I mean, the thing is, you can't get over him. I think I've made this point before. Even if he improves the strikeout rate by 25%, it's still going to be one of the five worst in baseball. Yeah. That's that's the gap he has to close. So, you know, if he hits over 225, I'll be stunned. I don't know how if he's going to be striking out 35% of the time because that's giving him a 25% improvement over last year. Yeah, it's really tough to hit that with that kind of average. Uh, even with the league average being 250, he's still going to be two tiers down or even as maybe even two standard deviations down from the league uh, wide batting average. So, you know, the power and everything is, is he the Adam Dunn? Does he get to that capacity? Who knows? But I think he's a wild card. I'm glad somebody else took him. 
uh, you know, in the thirteenth round, we actually went with uh, Souza. Yeah, uh, you know, somebody who we feel is more overall upside, and I think obviously uh, will have uh, more fantasy value than Baez will. Yeah, I, I definitely like that. You know, we went that route. Um, this is a guy who's getting some very interesting hype, and I, I you know, when. Pakoda is high on you. That's very interesting because they're pretty pessimistic overall, and, and and you understand why. Because most of the time, actually, I shouldn't even necessarily put that on them. I should say the rest of the world is more optimistic. They're more realistic. I think I think that's right. the, the better way to say it, as opposed to spinning it as a negative. And yet they still come out with an excellent. Uh, what I think 2020 or near 2020 projection for him. Uh, yeah. Steamer has Souza for 18 homers and 19 stolen bases. The fans agree they're just a little bit higher on the average. I would take the Steamer 18, 19, uh, 18 homers, 19 steals, and a 247 average. I would take that. Yet the upside exists for more. This is obviously a polished guy. He's going going to be age 26, going to a fresh club. Playing time is wide open. I thought we got him. The pick we got most heat on is Ken Giles. Why did you take a middle reliever in the in the 12th round? We obviously don't believe that we we did that. We don't we don't think we took a middle reliever. Maybe right now on the depth chart sure, but that's part of the early drafting where, you know, we didn't necessarily know how the room was going to read him. Once Pavel Bond gets traded and it, it'll happen sooner or later. Maybe not before spring training is over, but I believe it still will happen sooner or later. Giles is the guy, and he's a chance to be an elite stud. However, as I wrote in my write-up, even if it doesn't necessarily happen right away, the downside is still not that far down. So we took a risk with a high, high floor that he could be you know, one of those stud middle relievers, and you don't want that in the 12th round. Obviously, that's not what we want, but the floor is still something valuable. How did you feel about our Giles pick? Yeah, I mean, we talked about it, and we really didn't debate one another. It was more like, here's what I think. Well, here's what I think, and we we're on the same page with it. So we're like, okay, let's go for it. Yeah. I mean, on the surface, skills-wise, if, if, if Papelbaum were to be traded you know, the day after that, that draft, Giles is never there. He, he never makes it out of the 10th round. So we get him two rounds later. So obviously we're speculating. And it's not tough to do when you look at how terrible that team is going to be. Yeah. You know, the Phillies, it's not – there's no reason for them to hold on to hold on to Papelbon. I mean, I saw a report a couple of days ago that says they turned down an offer of a straight swap of like Broxton for Papelbon. It would have saved them sixteen million dollars. Yeah. And you know, the the feedback was, oh, we're not getting enough of a return. I'm like, damn, you're in a rebuilding project. They should have sixteen done million dollars is sixteen million dollars. I mean, you've got you, you've got the albatross of a Ryan Howard contract. You've got, I mean, all all Papelbon has to do is save uh, finish 48 games in 2015 for his next year contract to uh, to uh, flip in. Papelbon has has finished that many games every full season of his major league career. So if he doesn't do it this year, it would be a gigantic players union case if they're going to slow play him and sit him on the, when you know, when they the way they've used him over the past few years, and all of a sudden they start, oh no, we're going to throw somebody else in there. Mm-hmm. Then it'd be a tremendous union case. It just and they're going they're going to camp you know this week, and there's been all these Ryan Howard talks. There's been all of these. Papel, it's Clearwater is not going to be a fun place to be, especially when you look at uh, Papelbon, the way, you know, his attitude. This is the reason why we call him Papel Douche. I mean, the, the attitude with it. So I would love if, you know, we need we need a trade to happen in order to justify the pick 
to make it great. I, I'm still comfortable with it because he's still going to put up his numbers mm-hmm. uh, when, you, when you look at the end of the day uh, with him. But when you look at you know a guy like Wade Davis last year, so I, th- I think it's a, a, a decent comp for what for what he can do. A exactly. decent, well, not accurate, but decent. Wade Davis still earned nine dollars in a fifteen team mixed league last year. He was still more value. He was still more valuable than David Robertson and Joe Smith, Koji Ohara, and Jake McGee last year. And that's just that. That's kind of the downside is that if he doesn't necessarily do what we're expecting uh, for Giles, then he goes and, and just has a beast middle middle relief year. And yeah, you don't necessarily want that. Like I said, the picks getting a ton of heat, but you got to take some gambles sometimes. It, we don't give a crap to finish fourth. It doesn't matter. We're trying to win. And, you know, you don't take all crazy gambles. You know, we didn't want to go all the baby Cubs, Giles, all, you know, all the Springer who we did get, you know, not betting on the come with every single pick. We still took some old established guys, uh, Brett Gardner, Russell Martin, you know, Melky Cabrera. These are older established guys, but you have to mix in some of that betting on the come. Because that's how you have a chance to win. And so I, I stand by the pick. I think it was completely justifiable where, where we did it. I don't think we passed on anybody that was glaringly necessary for our club. And I still like the way the club turned out. We have an established closer in C-Sheck. And then Giles and Cecil, we have a chance, a legitimate chance, a strong chance to get 30-plus from both of them. And in that case... We got three stud closers. So, and, and I thought we did a great job at the back end of the draft. If I I'll pat ourselves on the back, Napoli, Jeanette, Alcantara, Gaussman, uh, Castellanos, and Ploof gave us nice third base depth. We even took Arod, and I didn't hate that pick at round twenty six. Say why not? Why not? What if he's motivated to go out there and it. do something? You know, right. he, he still has talent. I know he's a year removed from doing anything. But why not take a shot? So I really liked that, uh, you know, we ended up having to wait on second base and I thought it worked out pretty well. Jeanette, as a, as a full side or a strong side platoon guy, I like him a lot. Yes. All right. Well, then let's see here. That kind of covers up the labor mix draft. Like I said, I reviewed our whole draft, gave my thoughts, uh, threw Jason under the bus where I found it necessary, took credit for all the, all the great picks that people liked. So <laughs> I, I think I handled that pretty well. Other than that, there's not a ton of real news. Uh, Boston made an offer for Hamels. Apparently, it's it's MLB loaded as opposed to prospect loaded. I know they're still going for Swihart. Listen, I got no problem. I I know Ruben Amaro takes all the heat in the world. I don't really have a problem with him digging his heels in here with regards to we still need to get a stud player. Yes, Boston would be paying the money, but it's not like Hamels is an egregious contract. So to act like they should be able to get him for kind of peanuts just because of the money, I don't necessarily buy it. So I I, I lean more toward Ruben Amaro Jr. here definitely than I do on the Pavelbon situation, which I think he should have done the Broxton thing because Broxton, you don't even have to guarantee that he'll close or anything. You can bring him in, put Giles in the closer's role, and there's no problem. Broxton might think he could close, but it's not like you're, you're having a guy who is clearly better. Whereas with the Pavelbon situation, if you threw Giles into the role, like you said, that would turn into a major headache and probably a grievance. So how do you feel about this Hamill situation? I know it's really kind of dragging on to the because we don't have news do you think he's actually going to get traded 
I mean, here's the thing for me. I'll put on my AL East fandom hat for a second. Here, uh, you know, he's due. He's guaranteed ninety four million dollars over the next four seasons. Twenty three and a half each of the next four seasons. He has a fifth year option that vests, uh, according to Baseball Reference, if he has four hundred innings pitched in two thousand seventeen and two thousand eighteen, including two hundred innings pitched in two thousand eighteen. So even if he throws two twenty in two thousand seventeen, he still has to throw two hundred in two thousand eighteen. So there's no guarantee that option is going to vest. Hamels, as he is, is not a terrible contract. I mean, if, if I'm Ruben Amaro Jr., I dig my heels in on this one, and I wait till the trade deadline. Exactly. If Boston's not going to give me bets and or Swihart, or I need to have one of those guys in a deal to make this. This can't be, you know, we think back to years ago when they when they gave Bobby Abreu to the Yankees for nothing. <laughs> you, know, you know, just, you know, there's no reason to do that because you still have leverage. This isn't a terrible deal. It's it, it's a terrible deal for a, te- for a terrible team. Sure. But there's, you know, there's 10 teams that should be calling in on, on Cole Hamill saying, hey, you know, right, right now everybody may feel comfortable with their stuff, but in June and July – it completely shifts. I mean, there's going to be, we know there's going to be a team that comes out of nowhere to be a contender in the middle of the year. Definitely. You know, something's going to happen there. And somebody, you know, farm system, they go and say, you know, people are more willing to pay in the middle of the year than they are at the beginning of the year. Well, and it could change in a month. How many, how many spring training Tommy Johns did we have last year? Right. Somebody could lose a big guy that's, that's on a contending club and be like, you know what? We just can't afford to lose that guy. Let's let's give Philly a buzz here, and it could be heck if it's Boston with the guys that they already have because they don't have a ton of studs, and they go out and and lose one of their guys that they're kind of putting at the top here, uh, you know, with the Porcello Miley Masterson. That's not even a great crew to begin with, and if they lose one of them or Suckholtz, your favorite player in the universe, then they might be more prone to saying, "Listen, let's just get this done." So, digging in the heels, Ruben Amaro Jr. I don't think he's crazy for this at all. I fully support. Him saying, "Listen, we need one of the studs, and and that I'll even settle for one. It can just be Swihart. I know Swihart's been the name that's been thrown out. Probably not going to get bets because he's ready and, and going to be in the opening day lineup. Fine, then give me Swihart and we'll move on. But until you're going to do that, stop calling, stop texting. Thank you. <laughs> that, I mean, that's just that's just the way it now, would be for me. The other thing, I mean, the other fantasy aspect here is if you're in one of those archaic leagues that is tough love leagues. Oh yeah, you know, how do you approach this? Let's say. You're in an NL only league and you know, you're drafting, you're drafting in two weeks and you're in it. What round do you take Cole Hamels in an NL league that has, that is no compensation okay. for him being traded to the AL? In the NL only league? I don't know. He has to fall a couple rounds. So like, what is sixth round? Would he be going in the second or third if a, if a normal league? I, yeah, I think he's going in a normal league. I think he's going there because I mean, if you look at our, if you look at the mixed league, yeah, he ended up going in the fifth round at the towards the end of the fifth round in uh, in labor. So he was pick you know around right just around pick seventy. Yeah, so in there. You, so he was about the thirteenth pitcher, thirteenth or fourteenth pitcher off the board. If you have that and and shorten the league because you wouldn't do a fifteen team NL only. Yeah, you're right. talking second round. I got to say six. I got to bump him down several rounds. It's too scary. It, for an SOL league, that's too scary. I love Cole Hamels, but I, I, I'm, I'm entirely too terrified for that. And he's basically off my draft board because I, I, there's no way I'm getting him in the sixth. So I just basically peace out on him. It, it becomes Jordan Zimmerman, uh, which I think is a, is a useful parallel, and I would go that route. I just wouldn't even necessarily consider Hamels unless he super fell. All right. Now, he, now 
even in even in labor, he went five picks or four picks after Adam Wainwright. Which one of those pictures do you take in the NL League? I'm sorry, wait, I have the wrong direction. He went four picks before, uh, three picks before Adam Wainwright. I if you're in an NL only league. Which one of those guys do you roster? Goodness, I think I still take Hamels at that point. I'd still rather gamble on him either being traded to the NL or crazily staying with because I mean it's not even that crazy because they could again trade him next offseason too if he goes out and throws another 190 excellent innings that still has they still have a chance to trade him next year so he could realistically stay in Philly at that point I'm still taking the gamble because I'm not worried about skills or anything I'm just worried about the off chance that he gets traded to one of half of the league Whereas Wainwright, I'm actually just worried about him falling off and not being as good. So at that point, I'd still take Hamels. What about yourself? Okay, I agree with you. Okay. And then um, in, in the labor draft, Lester went ahead of Hamels and Zimmerman. Do you have them? Do you have it in that order? Lester's Hamels, Zimmerman? Uh, no, I like Zimmerman the best of all three. Yeah, I, I agree, especially in this context that we're talking about with the NL only, where Hamels I could lose. But even by myself, just with the straight straight rankings I have, Zimmerman on my Rotograph uh, ranking, I have Zimmerman 11. Actually, I have them directly in order, 11, 12, 13, uh, as far as overall starters goes Zimmerman, Lester, and Hamels. I actually have Lester a tick above Hamels right now, but when you're talking 11 versus 13, there's not much split. All right, here. Let's see. Next up, again, not much news. We're going to dive into the AL Central team preview very soon, and we're going to actually cover a little piece of Central news before we get there, though. Now Cleveland's looking at Diane Vicieto. It looks like Cincinnati's off of it, but somewhere in Ohio he's floating around maybe um, because Rayburn, Ryan Rayburn was a super flop as a short platoon guy last year. Two of his last three years of, of OPS against lefties, which is the side that he's supposed to be able to hit, he has a 477 and a 596. That's sandwiching his 1020 from 2013. Ryan Rayburn, no good. So th- there is there is the need, there is the use that uh, that Cleveland can have for Vicieto here. And I know we kind of already talked about him. You think they get something done here uh, so that they have their, their Brandon Moss platoon partner? I mean, anybody with a weak bench should be looking at this guy, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. But, I mean, my issue with him is you know his his reputation to hit lefties is kind of built off one season. Oh, I mean, so when this, similar this, this to... gets to a lesson. Yeah, I mean it gets to a lesson about sample size. So let's look at let's look at 2012 with Diane Vicieto. Over uh, 133 plate appearances, he has 350 with a 1033 OPS. Just rakes him, strikes out 13% of the time. Since then, over the last two seasons, 237 with a 692 OPS and a 19% strikeout rate. But if you look at the three-year body of work, 274 with an 805 OPS and a 17% strikeout rate. So three-year body of work, he hits lefties. Last two years, he doesn't hit anybody, but he's still 25. Something else could go the other way for him. But anybody with a weak bench should be looking at this guy. I'd have no problem. I I don't want him with more playing time. This kind of gets back to the Johnny Gomes theory. Yes. You don't want this guy playing too much. But you you want to have him around in case something does click. But you look at, you know, looking where he's been pitched against lefties, Vicieto, it looks like the league has decided to say, you know what? After 2012, okay, maybe we shouldn't throw stuff over the heart of the plate. So, I mean, I'm looking at you know, where he's been pitched, and Vicieto is getting stuff in and stuff away. And so, in my mind, I'm visioning, okay, we're going to throw you a fastball away, and then, all right, 
Vizieto, here we go on the inner half. And if you're looking out and it comes in, you can't do anything. We've seen so many guys lock up. Or if you're looking to protect middle end and it gets you on the outside corner, right. you know, you can't, you can only, Joe Madden said it to us a lot in, in the print, you could only protect half the plate. Mm hmm. You have to zone in or zone out. It's really tough to cover. Only the best guys can protect the, the entire plate. Vicieto is clearly not one of the best guys. So if he's looking in and you get him away, you can pretty much – I didn't even look at the at the strikes looking, but I'm guessing his strikeout looking total was high, because especially on fastballs. I bet you it's higher than it used to be. That is interesting with regards to – because, yeah, I, I'm even out there citing his versus lefty numbers. Didn't realize they were so bunched up with that one big year – uh, that he needs to kind of get that reputation back or else he's going to just be this guy who you can bring in for a couple at-bats here and there. But like you said, and the one thing I do like, we're talking about 26-year-old. There's still a chance for some something to click, maybe getting with a new organization. I'm not saying he needs the change of scenery, but obviously he's going to get one because Chicago said no thanks. Um, let's dive So I was oh, – oh, before we do that, I actually just did look up the called strike percentage on Vicieta on fastballs. 2012, 27% since 31%. Oh, so wow. he is taking more fastballs for strikes than he was. And that to me is, is that in out. And that's one of the things that when I've, you know, you see a lot of talk right now. And I know Sullivan wrote a piece on, on the high fastball and how Rays, to me, that's, it's all about eye level. If you're going to pitch high, you got to have something low. So, you know, you're going to throw that high. And Zimmerman does a great job of this. High fastballs, low off speed. Or, or you know, so that's one of the things that made Smiley so effective last year. I'm, or, and Oda Rizzi. I'm you know, going to throw up high, and then I'm going to throw that hammer curve, or I'm going to throw that change up low. So you either have to be able to work in and out or up and down to, to kind of take that next step up as a pitcher. You know who else has that exact profile is uh, Matt Shoemaker. Up with the fastball. And then down with every all the soft stuff. All the soft stuff is uh, down, you know, about seventy percent of the time. And the fastball isn't up, you know, like fifty plus or anything. But it's the only thing that he throws up in the zone more than more than twenty five percent of the time. So, well, and I think you and I talked about this uh, at some point. This was my this was always my concern with Danny Salazar. Oh yeah. And, uh, you know, but he changed that. If you go back and look last year, you know, go use the Fangraphs heat maps and look at Salazar after he came back up from the minor leagues compared to before he got sent down last year. And even back to 2013, everything, all the fastballs were up, all the change, but all the changes were down, but just about every fastball was up. And to me, it's like what, what finally cracked him was in that, that play-in game when Delman Young took him deep. Mm-hmm. You know, Delman Young versus right-handers is always a struggle. But Delman Young got around on 98 and absolutely destroyed that in 2013. And it kind of pointed out the issue with him is that that high fastball, if he keeps throwing it high and doesn't change the eye level with that fastball, when they read fastball out of the hand, that's where it's, it, they know it's going to be there. And then you look in the second half, and he started working up and down and a little bit in and out. We talked about this with uh, with Jensen Lewis. About that, and that's where and that's where he made his uh, his improvements last year, and that's why I, I like I like Salazar a lot this year. And we will and talk was, about him a lot yeah. when we get to. He's going to be my pitcher for the Indians, but that's who I like a lot this year because I like the growth that I saw from him last year uh, in that regard. But that's kind of where what I see Vicieto, I see a lot of him hopping around. I just you know, for a bench role, yes. So that uh, that really limits him to him. NL only. 
NL only daily leagues where you can switch your lineup. Yeah. Other than that, I'm not interested. Yeah, just just the only leagues at this point, depending on what what squad he goes to or DFS against a weak lefty, uh, is the way you can use Diane Vicieto. Going back to your Salazar point, just to put numbers to it, first half, 53% with the high fastball, uh, and then the other the changeup 62% low, the slider 58% low. So it was it was just either or. Once you read fastball, you knew it was high. The second half, 43% up with the fastball. So he started mixing it, spotting it elsewhere in the zone. Still still way down with the changeup and and the slider, but that's okay if you're moving that fastball around. And that's well, why you don't I, want the changeup up. I mean, that's the, exactly. that's the thing. I'm fine with the changeup down. And this, the slider, I'm more can you, can you front door it and back door it. Exactly. I mean, honestly, you don't. That's the issue with the slider. Most guys throw it as a chase pitch because if you try to front door the slider and you miss it, it's rolling right over the middle of the plate. And your toes. Uh, or you're hitting, or you're hitting the batter. It's really a fine line if you try to, to front door a slider. Uh, that's why more, more most guys are going to a cutter for that particular pitch. But yeah, it's, you look at the heat maps for Salazar. It's rather drastic on the fastball to see the, the changes, and that's why I like the skill growth because it it wasn't all he was making guys, especially down and away. That's really where he started working where he didn't previously. That was not his uh, his thing, and uh, I think the results speak for themselves when you look at a uh, in the first half of last year an 8.52 OPS off fastballs versus a 6.76 in the second half. Uh, that's and the same pitch, same velocity, different location was a big was a big thing for him. And and that was the whole thing coming into the season. That's that's one of the reasons I was down on him is his fastball command. He couldn't necessarily put it where he wanted, and it left him prone to home runs. And and that that was a problem for me. So uh, we will talk more about the Indians here in, in just a moment. But we're going to start our AL, AL Central preview with the White Sox. And let's talk about our favorite hitters at their current cost right now. It's a pretty interesting lineup with a lot of fantasy worthy guys. In fact, I'd say. That in a lot of league formats, you're talking about eight of the nine should get drafted. You know, in our format, in our 15 team uh, mixed league that we had, we drafted Tyler Flowers. He's right on that cusp, kind of depending on your league. And then I have Carlos Sanchez, who's currently slotted into the lineup as the starting second baseman, but it could be Bonifacio, who we also drafted. So there's a chance that all nine of their guys are draftable, depending on how the lineup shakes out and what sort of league type. But for the most part, they're going to have a a quality six or seven guys that are drafted in every single league format. Who do you like best out of those? You know, I really like this team overall. And, you know, we're going to get to this uh, at the end of the show as we go over the over and unders uh, from Vegas. They have this, this team with 82 wins, and I think that's underselling them. I really like Melky Cabrera for this team. Uh, when you look at he's going to be hitting behind Adam Eaton, who sets the table really well. He's going to be hitting in front of Jose Abreu, who cleans the table really well. Mm-hmm. So when you look at if, you know, getting back to what we talked about last week, lineup protection, it's better for the guy in front of you than the guy behind you. And in Melky's case, he's got the best of both worlds. He's got a guy that's going to get on base and is going to force pitchers to pitch out of the stretch. And he's got a guy that can really clean the table uh, with a Brady behind him. Currently, Melky is going uh, – his his average ADP across all leagues is uh, is 155. He's going 166 in NFBC. He's going two rounds behind Yasmati Tomas. You know, he's going – you know, he's going 50 picks behind Rusne Castillo – that kind of thing. I love Melky Cabrera's current value. I don't know how long it's going to last, but I think he's being sorely underdrafted. And by the way, another guy we drafted, we went pretty heavy on the White Sox here, uh, incidentally, in our in our draft. 
that leads into one of the questions that I was going to ask about this club after we talked favorite hitter, favorite pitcher. Those White Sox outfielders are tightly bunched, and as I wrote in the rundown, I know Melky is probably your favorite. I could have, I could have dropped the probably. I knew he was your favorite. <laughs> uh, and I agree with you, by the way. That was going to be my pick if you didn't pick him. I, I want to get him spoken about for sure. But but they're they're tightly bunched among outfielders. In NFBC, Melky goes 43rd, Avasil Garcia goes 46th, and Adam Eaton goes 51st. That's 164, 185, 209 in terms of overall picks. So bigger split there. But amongst the outfielders, pretty tight. Who's your second favorite after after Melky? Um, second, Adam Eaton. I mean, I really like Eaton. The top of this lineup, when you look at Abreu, you would look at LaRoche, who I like um, in this. I know who your second favorite is going to be, but so I went with the other route. But I like Eaton as a table setter. Yeah, I I, I really do like Avisail Garcia, and I know that that's pretty popular. I'm, I'm not definitely not stepping out on a branch with that one. Uh, he's, he's a player that a lot of people are intrigued by. Um, but it's it's he's a divisive guy though, because at some point there are other sides saying. What are y'all doing with like what what do y'all care about this guy for? He's he's twenty-four, he hasn't done anything worth a lick. I get it. It's a light sample to kind of go off of, but he's done some basically league average work for about five hundred plate appearances. I like the fact that he has the power and and some speed. Not a lot of speed, even a full season, probably like eight to ten stolen bases, but the power potential I think is is much higher right now. Now he has to maintain right now a high high uh, a high homer to fly ball ratio because he's not hitting a ton of fly balls. But once he learns to lift the ball and not hit so many darn grounders, I think he's got a chance to be something special. And it's probably not all gonna come this year, which is why I don't want to overdraft him, but I definitely like him as a guy and I also think that batting average the one that we saw in 2013 when he hit 283 is closer to what we saw uh, is closer to who he is than what we saw last year when Avisel Garcia hit 244. So I think this is a guy who can be kind of a 275 hitter, and and you know at his best he can approach the fans projection which is 20 homers 14 steals still a little bit too much for me i'm still more of the uh, of the nine but 20 and nine with a 274 average that that's that's a six season uh at that point of the draft i know that doesn't feel like a six season but we are in a different era and I, i know we keep saying it a lot but i still think that that point needs to be beaten home to the fantasy community that you have to look at a season like that a, a lot differently than we would have before because that would have been freely available on the wire for years uh, in the you know quote unquote steroid era. Uh, so yeah, he's technically probably my favorite hitter, but I also want to get a mention in there for LaRoche. Fifteenth uh, first baseman off the board. First base is so deep, and and LaRoche it, it exemplifies that as right. the 147th pick and 15, 15th first baseman off the board. He's leaving a park that was terrible. For left-handers, uh, 75 home run park factor for Na- Nationals Park, and now he's going to one that is not amazing. Uh, it's it's better for right-handers, but but strong still for for lefties at a 110 home run park factor. So if he's doing what he did in Washington, a healthy season with with his new ball club, I think is going to bode very well for him. Adam LaRoche constantly underrated, and that that hasn't changed again this year. I mean, going to the, the Garcia and uh, the Melky picks, you look at, in the outfield, the two outfielders going ahead of Garcia uh, within a round are Denard Spann, who we both said we liked, and I, I have no problem with that. But then Alex Rios, you know, where's the upside on the older guy, the 34-year-old guy who has shown skills decline? He's going to pick ahead of Garcia. I don't know how those two are that close. And then with Melky in front of him is Will Myers, who's full of question marks, and Shinshu Chu, 
who's a strong side platoon guy that can't hit lefties. You yeah. know, why is why are either of those guys going before Melky, who's hitting at the top of the lineup, is going to play every day? Yes, he's had some uh, you know health issues, but it's mostly behind him. And he's proven that. But he's still a strong average guy. He's got a strong lineup. But those guys are the ones going ahead of him. And not I wouldn't be doing that person. I think Melky deserves to be in the top 150, and he's he's being drafted a full round below that in the 15-team league. I completely agree. I think Melky should actually be up with another guy we picked, Brett Gardner. So that, honestly, if you feel that we overdrafted Brett Gardner, I think we more than made up for it with, with uh, getting a value pick on Cabrera, and the two kind of even out, and they're both kind of across-the-board guys who can deliver a lot. So I, I like those two guys in our outfield with our high upside guy, George Springer. Uh, let's talk pitching on this club. I'll start. Uh, love Jose Quintana. And, Damn it! <laughs> yeah, I, I had to, I had to even reserve him, you know, because I knew you'd take him. So I was like, I, I I'm gonna give him I'm gonna give him Melky on offense, but I got to get the Jose Quintana talk in. This guy just keeps getting better. And uh, I think New York, the Yankees might regret the decision to just kind of let him walk free. And every team has it. So I'm not even necessarily trying to crap all over the Yankees. Every team has these guys littered throughout that you kind of give up on and they go strike fire elsewhere. Um, Quintana came up that first year, 2012, and it really wasn't that impressive. He he had done a 376 ERA, but the skills were weak, uh, 14% strikeout rate. I'm like, ah, this guy's a ground ball specialist, whatever. Comes out the next year, 2013, throws 200 innings with a 20% strikeout rate and improved the walk rate. All of a sudden, you're looking at him, whoa, still a ground ball guy, getting more impressive. Last year was a, a compilation of it all. Strikeout rate took another jump. Walk rate took another dip down. Continued to be a ground ball guy. And honestly, if he had if he had had his strands, uh, his left on base strand rates, whichever you want to call it, that he'd had in those first two years, which averaged about seventy five percent, if he had not fallen down to sixty nine percent, he'd have been much better than the three three two ERA that we saw from Quintana last year. Throw in a nine and eleven rec- record, which some people are going to vastly overrate and push him down. And this guy's going at a great value right now. He went sixteenth round in in the uh, in the labor league. I thought that was an amazing value for James Quintong, and he's going as the fifty third starter off the board. Jose Fernandez is going before him. Okay, maybe next year when Jose Fernandez is one hundred percent healthy, you got to have him going ahead of Quintana. But right now, when the best the best that you can expect out of Fernandez is three and a half months because he's obviously the all-star break. He's not supposed to come right. back until uh, June. you got to give him some time to ramp up, and then the all-star break, you're looking at three and a half months. That's the best you can expect. Over a 200-inning Quintana who just keeps getting better, not a chance. I think this guy has a chance to have a really big season. I'm talking something in the low threes and with a a, a one-teens whip, you know, like a 115 whip. So if you're talking 305 ERA, 115 whip with the strikeouts, they're not huge. But when you throw 200 innings, you can still put the volume up. I love Jose Quintana this year. The only bit of reservation I have, and it kind of de- uh, you know echoes back to last year, uh, is the fact that we saw this same kind of skills growth out of two guys uh, that you know I was uh, out there talking a lot about Porcello and Bailey. Both mm-hmm. of these guys showed the same kind of strikeout rate growth, kept growing, kept growing, kept growing, and then Porcello t- and Bailey both took a step back a little bit. Porcello's, especially strikeout rate, a little more pronounced uh, for him. But with you know with Quintana, you look at you know Eno likes to talk about pitch values. And you look at Quintana, the fastball and the curveball 
positive pitch values. And I think he's got two positive pitch values. And I, you can't make that case about Porcello. Uh, at least I can't, I don't think you can. No. But with, with, in, uh, with Quintana, the pitch values are really strong and, and the cutter pitch value is not terrible either. So he's almost at three, uh, with that regard. So I, I do like this guy a lot. But like I said, a little bit, the, the trending strikeout rate, I, I couldn't help but Think about last year with Porcello and Bailey. Bailey was on a five-year run. Porcello was on a four-year run, and both of them took a little bit of a step back. And then, yeah, then they then they stifled. By the way, Bailey. I know we're not we're doing AL Central, not NL Central, but I'm going right back to the well with him. I think the yes. price the price decline is hilarious to me. Uh, you know, we were out there both pumping him last year, and I think you know might have had some influence over the fact that he was going pretty high last year. And uh, I stand by it because everything backed it up. I didn't really realize he was, you know, going to get hurt and uh, not pitch as well uh, coming out of the gate there. But everything backed it skills-wise. He didn't back it up. But the skills actually still stayed pretty strong. They went down a little bit, as you mentioned, but they didn't crater. The strikeout rate slid back, showing that 2013 might be the career high. But he was right back in line with what he'd done the previous four years. And then the walk rate went up. Um but not to a level that I'm terrified of at 7.5%. So for Homer Bailey, I think the strikeouts can actually go back up. I still believe in this guy a lot, but he's going at a major discount now. Porcello, I'm a little, I still love him, but I'm a little bummed that uh, he's no longer a Tiger, and I don't, I don't love him in that park. And he's still, he's still a better real life pitcher than fantasy. That's the simple fact with Porcello right now. Here, and here's the thing. When you look at starting pitching depth this year, and I'm looking at the NFBC average draft, so I'm not factoring in anybody else, just them. Bailey is the 55th starting pitcher off the board at 220 is where he's at. Danny Salazar, guy we just talked about, 232. Oda Rizzi, 241. I mean, there's a lot of starting in this era of a lot of pitchers being able to do the strikeout rate. I mean, a guy you love, Chris Tillman's 265 right now. Yeah. Kevin Gossman, 266. Insane starting pitching depth. So if you want to be the guy that, that goes with the, uh, I'm going to spend 50 on pitching and 210 on hitting, yeah, this could be your I year. But you there's a it. lot of guys. There's a lot of guys out there. I think, um, you know, if, if people haven't read the article, there was a fantastic article by Tristan Cockcroft from ESPN the other day. I uh, tweeted it out, even put it on Facebook. But he talked about different pitching structures, and he had the the modified Labadini plan. For people who don't know what the Labadini plan is, it was spend two fifty one on hitters and spend nine dollars on pitchers. If Labadini's not a name that rings a bell with you, try Doug Dennis of Baseball HQ because mm-hmm. Doug's just about that guy now. He I've seen Doug go two forty and twenty. Uh, in, in a draft, especially in a mixed. But he said the modified Labadini, uh, Tristan did, and said, okay, draft a Kershaw, draft a Felix, and then go 12 straight rounds of hitting, and then pick up your pitching in a mixed league. I'm curious if somebody tries that. I want to see how it plays out uh, to see if, if it's something that uh, is they're able to be successful with. Because obviously, if you do that, you're going with lower-tier closers. Yep. And you're going with uh, you know, lower-tier starting pitchers. But then you look at Derek Van Riper, uh, Rotowire, who won mixed tout wars last year and had crappy closers coming out of the draft. So it can happen. Uh, and I know he was, he's kind of spent heavy on offense too last year. And then, uh, yeah, I want to say he did something like that. He really, he spent really early big because that mixed trout, mixed to trout, mixed tout is an auction. Uh, so uh, Derek did spend big early on that. But right now, uh, this ADP data will get cleaned up a little bit as we get closer to the draft. But right now, 
I'm looking down in the in the mid 60s, and there's seven. I'll go for Shelby Miller as a 65th pitcher off the board. Here's I would go all over Drew Hutchinson at 67th pitcher off the board. Here's the thing, and it, it might get cleaned up, but the, the fact is the volume is there. I'm I'm at a point right now, and I've been saying this a bit, where say late 30s to early 40s in terms of starting pitcher between that area and almost like early 70s. The gap in talent just isn't that substantial. Now there's more certainty, say, you know, uh, we've already seen a Garrett Richards do what he can do. Uh, Zach Wheeler has the, the pedigree. Annabelle Sanchez has done some great things. Those kind of guys are, uh, Quintana, who we just spoke about. Th- those guys are in the late 30s, early 40s. Okay. They're a little bit more certain, but is their talent this much further ahead of Trevor Bauer, uh, a Drew Hutchison, like you're talking about, Shelby Miller, even Scott Casimir, if he stays healthy again, Jason Hamill, a guy we like who, who was one of the very few snakes that happened to us. We didn't get snaked a lot, which felt good. If our guys were taken, they was up way at the other end of the draft when we weren't going to get them anyway. There, there's just not that huge talent gap. There might be different factors going in. Even a Dallas Keiko and Colin McHugh, they're not getting taxed at all for their season last year. They were both excellent with some skills to support it and they're going in the 60s among starting pitchers so yeah there is the capability to do that at the same time i still understand people drafting pitching early i don't think it's an either or i think you can win with either strategy i think those who are kind of fighting back against the early studs saying why would you do that because there's more pitching now i don't think i don't think it's necessarily uh, an either or situation because with the depth of all those studs putting up the sub three seasons, you're going to need to still hit quite a bit on these late end guys. Uh, I'm right. just saying the talent and the capability is there, but it's not like it's going to be a given. You know, your Lance Lynn season, uh, I, I like what he does, but he's probably going to fall back in ERA. And he, and having a bunch of Lance Lynns might feel great because you're like, I got all these guys late and they're three, five ERA kind of guys. Yeah, I got a bunch of guys who can do a two five ERA though. When I took two studs in the early in the early rounds there with uh, with, with uh, Kershaw and Cobb, you know. So I, I don't think there's an either or, but I do like the idea. By the way, I'd actually just pulled up that Tristan article this morning and started it before we uh, started recording. So I'm going to finish reading that. I agree. There are a lot of different ways to kind of quote unquote what skin the cat. I believe is the phrase that everyone yes. uses. So there are a lot of ways to do it. I, I don't like digging in saying one way or the other that it has to be this or that i think if you want to go studs early fine if you want to wait and try to build that way and then stream by all means there's a lot of things you can do here's the thing i mean for when we look at sample size for the draft we saw a tweet from greg ambrosius earlier this morning said they have they're up to 90 paid drafts okay in nfbc already that have happened so that's a pretty significant pool mm-hmm. i mean not you if you're paying money you're not playing around. Exactly. Well, Especially in, that, in the 90, yeah, well, in the 90th draft, somebody took Clayton Kershaw first overall. I would love to hear the backstory behind Ooh. that. But in the 90th draft, somebody took Clayton Kershaw first overall. Uh, so that's where we're not. So we have a good sample size. I'm just surprised that so far this is where the pitching's going because, you know, if I, in NFBC, you know, for, again, for people that don't understand, you can't trade. You have to try to draft a balanced roster. So some of this stuff gets skewed by this because closers are going to go earlier than they're going to go in your home league because you can trade in your home league. 
Yeah, and, so, and that's why there's more of a balanced draft. So that that does affect some point. of this data. And so that's why you have to take it with a grain of salt. But still, this is where the this is where the group think has these pitchers. I, I look more at the pitchers' rankings than I do at the ADP. So right. if for, if the group think is taking you know, is taking Francisco Liriano and they're taking they have him ranked as the 56th starting pitcher, and I can go get Drew Hutchinson as a 67th guy. I'm cool with that. Agreed. Exactly. And and just behind Hutchison, the one of the Orioles that you mentioned that I love, Chris Tillman, and then another one that I super love, Kevin Gaussman. So, you know, again, when it gets in that middle tier, you can definitely wait unless your guy's there. That's the thing, though. Uh, at the same point, if you were thinking, oh, I would want to take um, – I'm, I'm at the two, 227th pick where Liriano goes. If you ended up taking Hutchison at that point – even though it's 10 spots above his his pitcher ADP and what what is that then 30 picks over his ADP I wouldn't mm-hmm. have a problem with it because you're wor- you know it, it only takes one and when they're tightly bunched like that I think they're all kind of going they can go in that range so take your guy when you're ready that makes the ADP less useful in this uh, 40 to 70 range because they can all kind of go whenever somebody's ready to pop them. It's not a clear tier where you're saying, how on earth did you take, uh, you know, Danny Salazar over Matt Shoemaker when they have a, a, a five pitcher split? No, no, not a chance. I prefer Salazar. I love strikeouts, et cetera. I take him. Or you prefer a guy like a shoemaker who showed that command and control, however you want to do it. So it's going to be a crazy year because no, I, I already know that no draft is alike, but I think it's going to be even more snowflakeish than ever in that there's going to be so many different things happening. Yes. All right, now I need your pitcher from this club, and we'll get back on track here with the White Sox. I'm going to go with Rodon, only because the back end of this rotation is Danks and Noessi. Neither of those guys are built to hold that job. One of those guys is just their jersey should be called placeholder, because (laughs) as soon as as Rodon gets past the Super 2, he's going to come up. I hope they do it quicker, but none of those guys... To me, I think it's a wasted opportunity by Chicago. I think this is a team that can contend for the postseason in that division. And I think having Danks and Noessi out there every fifth day is a mistake. Uh, and Rodon should be up as quickly as possible. I mean, even Eric Johnson, a guy that is, has got some decent stuff. Uh, but they, they need another pitcher on this team. I think Rodon's going to be that guy sooner rather than later. And those two guys at the back end of the rotation are not long for that roster. Yeah, I don't go crazy for the, the previous year's draft picks just because they're the hot names going. But if there's one you can get me to start looking at in, in different formats, whether it's deep mixed or AL only, it's Rodon. And if you do have the early draft, you strike now before any of that spring training flair goes on. And because if he goes out and pitches well in spring training – his his ADP is going to skyrocket. That's 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 just a guarantee. All right, now I got a few questions about this team for you. First off, Alexi Ramirez, his power returned last year after a two year hiatus, and I got to ask, are you buying it? It seems that it's directly related to his homer to fly ball rate. Here here's his homer to fly ball rate percentage last four years: eight percent, five percent, four percent, and then back at eight percent last year. Home runs in those in those four years for Alexi Ramirez: fifteen, nine, six which coincidentally adds up to 15, and then 15 <laughs> again last year. So do you think – I guess what I, sh- what I should really ask, do you think the 8% uh, homer-to-fly ball ratio sticks, or is he going to dip back to those lower numbers that he was at in previous years, which makes him fall off? 
I think it could stick uh, for him. I think really the stolen bases is where I'm 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 at with him is because he's had 20, 30, and 21 over the past three seasons. Even though he's into his 30s, it's holding up well. And last year he was 21 of 25 in stealing those bases. So I, I like Alexi Ramirez in that regard. I think he's a I think he's a potential 15-15 guy, mm-hmm. but I have more comfort saying he's he's definitely getting the 15 stolen bases um, with Ramirez in that regard. So the stolen bases could still get back to 20, but when you're at age 33, it's a little tough. Shortstop's not terribly deep. Alexi, his ADP right now has him as the fifth best shortstop uh, behind Reyes, Ramirez, Desmond, and Tulowitzki. That's where he is in that regard, and I think that doesn't reflect that doesn't reflect his draft where he's going in drafts because he uh, I want to say he went well after that and, and uh, labor. I'm trying to look at that right now. Uh, Alexi Ramirez went one, two, three, four in the sixth round. Okay, he went towards the end of the sixth round. In fact, he was six point one four, so that puts him at one oh four. And he was the sixth shortstop. It looks like off the board. After you include Hanley Ramirez, uh, Tulo, yes. Desmond, Hanley, Reyes, our own Castro, and then Alexi. And, you know, as, as stable as it gets in terms of the playing time, and I, I think it's Jeff Erickson who likes to say, yeah, they're, they're, they're reliable until they're not. You know, you can only go so far banking on that. But 158 games played each of the last four years for Alexi Ramirez, 156 before that, and then 148, 136 his first two years. I think this first year he might have had some nicks, or maybe that was just when they brought him up. But that guy, when he goes out, he plays. So if you, at a position that is as thin as that, as, as insofar as we can bet on anything, if you want to bet on a guy who plays so you don't have to dip back into the pool, that might make him a better uh, deep league play where the where the pool would be much thinner or an AL only league play because if you feel like you're going to get that buck 58 again and maybe you got to back it down a little bit because he's 33 and he's only going to get, say, 150. But still, that's a lot easier to go out and replace than, for example, uh, a Jose Reyes who could play 30 games. Right, and we talked about we talked about Alexi Ramirez when we looked at the Castro pick, mm-hmm. uh, but we went with the guy with the younger guy where there's upside. I don't see upside in a 33 year old guy, Can't. especially in a guy that, I mean, he's a compiler. Let's be honest, because he, he, as you said, he plays all of these games, so he gets his numbers because he plays all of these games. The skills are incredibly stable: strikeout rate, walk rate, all of this. He is who he is, and he plays. No upside there with Castro. We've seen the high, we've seen the low. At the youth, you can really bet on him going back towards the high. With 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 Ramirez here, you know you can't fight Father Time. He's thirty three. No. That stuff has to start slowing down. It's it's undefeated. Uh, Jeff Samarja, is he a top twenty starter for you? Um, no, because of the ballpark. Okay, I have him there. I actually I'm I'm actually quite high on him this year. But uh, again, you're always high on him, though. That 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 much is true. Well, ever since he kind of shifted into the rotation and proved that he can handle it, I, I have bought in. So um, I know I know it's not a great ballpark, but I think he can handle it. He be, he's become a, a, a severe ground ball guy these last couple years with 48 and 50 percent. The strikeout rates there, so the contact isn't happening a lot. If those walk rate gains from last year are, are legit, from 8.5 to 4.9 percent, I do think Samarja can really have another A level year so I'm, I'm very excited about him i just want to kind of see where you are but again i will i will allow the the idea that um that that mid-teens to 
I'd say even mid twenties band is also very tight. Throw him up, throw him up in the air, and however they land. Exactly. If you, if you start putting a Shields above him, a Garrett Cole and Alex Cobb, uh, even a Julio Tehran, I know the wins could be a disaster there, but we don't we don't bet on that. We go out and draft ratios. Uh, I think you can make a case for a Jake Arrieta, even though he's only got the one year, but he was so good. Jacob Degrom, same kind of thing. Carlos Carrasco is getting a lot of early season buzz. There's a there's a fat group there again right. that you could just toss up like you said and kind of let them be where they may. For me, I got Samarja in the mid teens there, but I'm also a pretty big Samarja fan. So, all right, let's uh, let's move on. Let's get back on this Cleveland team. We spoke a little bit about them with regards to their bench. Now let's talk about the players that matter. Who is your favorite hitter on this Cleveland ball club? Uh, favorite hitter in the Cleveland ball club. I, I kind of know where you're going to go, so I'm going to try to stay away from that. Yeah, I think I do. Okay. Um, Yikes. I mean, I don't have a – I mean, last year, I liked Jason Kipnis for a rebound. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I should go the other way. The, the guy I want no part of, I want no part of Nick Swisher. I don't care what discount he comes at. You're done because of the shoulder, right? The, the, the shoulder, his inability to hit off-speed pitching – uh, it, it just it everything points at a in a quick aging curve for and him. For, and for those and don't who don't care, know, let me interrupt. We you. love Nick Swisher. <laughs> we love Nick Swisher. This is very difficult to kind of put that nail in the coffin. In fact, I'm 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 the guy standing in front of Jason's hammer, trying not to get him to put the hammer in just yet. But he is he is nailing that coffin shut on a guy that we've always loved. I know some folks think he's a douche. We think he's cool and fun, yet what a disastrous season. Like you said, 33, now going to be 34. It's come quickly for him. I mean, Michael Brantley is, the, is honestly the obvious choice. I think he's the, the clearly the best dude here. When you looked at what he did, I think it's very legitimate what he did um, last season. And I made a comment. I'm trying to remember the comment exactly I made uh, for the the fantasy four one one write up, but you know if he was in a different market, he'd be more appreciated yeah. uh, for what he's able to do. But this, you know, twenty twenty hit three twenty seven last year. All so of good. that is re- all of that is repeatable. It really is. I, I I love Michael Brantley, and I don't understand why so many are looking for such a big slide off. Because I think his even the back off that you could do, I still think it's a, a pretty high floor, and I value a high floor early on. And uh, I, I, I think this lineup has some good depth to it. Now, did you think I was going to go with uh, Carlos Santana or Brandon Moss? Moss. Okay, you you were 100% correct, I guess. <laughs> uh, I, after, after the wizardry that you showed during the draft when you would guess people's picks perfectly, not position, folks. I'm not talking about, he, oh, he's going to go pitcher here. No, he's going to say... He's going to pick Drew Storen here, and then he would pick Drew Storen. This was Jason and I were on Skype throughout the whole draft. You were nailing picks left and right. I shouldn't have been surprised that somebody who's the likes and dislikes you know very well, you were going to guess very easily. I was so, hitting about eighty percent on those. It was too. ridiculous, <laughs> and usually they'd go like a pick later. Sometimes if you did miss them, it was absurd. It was wizardry, as I say. Uh, so yes, you are correct. It's it's Moss. I do love Moss here. I get the uh, issue that he's got coming in with regards to the hip, but. I, I've seen I've seen positive reports on it. I've seen issues that suggest or um, uh, articles that suggest that we don't need to freak out about it. And with that, you're talking about the 18th first baseman off the board. Um, and if pick 163, which would put him, let's see where it would put him in the outfield. It would put him right around Melky, right right before Melky. So if you took Melky before him, okay. But but those two right by each other, quality players, getting 30 homers that late. That's tough to do, and I know he's 31, but the the power has been there now for three straight years, and again, 
going to a park that isn't great, but it is a, a, a sharp increase from where he was. So you don't think of Cleveland as a hitter's park, but it's actually favorable to lefties for homers, 112 park factor. Oakland's probably like a four. Actually, it's 82. So that's a four. Uh, that, that's a 30-point gain there. And even if it only translates to a few homers, you know, and he only jumps up to 30, I'm taking that all day. I'm taking 30 mm-hmm. and 90 all day long. I'm not worried about the average. I know it was bad last year. But we've seen a lot from this guy now in three years. I'm buying in on this late career surge, and I'll take him at his price because even if there is some some injury or it doesn't quite go as well, I didn't invest that much. I mean, it, you know, it's a, it's a solid investment, but it's not a huge investment. Hey, I tell you what, I don't. It, it means nothing for fantasy, but as I play MLB this show, Brandon Moss is a beast in home run derby. So good, a He's beast. Good. I don't know what it is with that dude, but I play him, and I just like I, I kill my son when I play him. You know, I'm also really good with left-handers for some reason. That's uh, I, with left-handed uh, in video games, much better with yes. left-handers. I, I don't know what what it is, but uh, that's why I usually make my creative player switch if not a full-out left, even though I myself am right. Uh, is there a way to switch the pitcher during B- to uh, home run derby so they pitch left-handed, or is it always a righty? Oh, you know what? I have. I would have to look that up. Listeners, if you hear the answer, send it in, because that, that's that, one of the things that drives me crazy. That'd be great. I'd love to mix it up. But yeah, I, that game, by the way, they've already been looking at the, the 2015 version, doing some streams with the uh, with some gameplay. It's going to be even better. I'm so excited. It's ridiculous. Mine is collecting dust, unfortunately, because of the starting pitching guide, but that's that's the sacrifice you make. You got it. You got to finish the work before you can actually get back on the playstation so i have not been playing it uh so that we can doug and i can finish the starting pitching guy anyway uh let's see so we've covered our favorite hitters favorite pitchers we've talked about a bunch here uh you know we kind of already kind of mentioned salazar if you want to dig deeper do you have any other tidbits on salazar i know that's your favorite no um, i think i've I, you know we, we can take kluber off the board yeah uh, there's nothing I'm, else that needs to be said I'm, there um carrasco i, I feel is being overdrafted that's uh, you talked about no tax. You talk about no tax on guys like McHugh for last year. I think there's a huge tax on Carrasco right now. And I'll, I'll leave the other guy because I think that's where you're going to go. But I've said everything I want to say about Salazar. Yeah, I'm going to go with Trevor Bauer. And, yeah. uh, you know, this is a guy who was forgotten because he didn't come up and storm the league. And I don't think it ever should have been expected that he would come up and storm the league. He had clear flaws in the minors that were going to be exploited in the majors. You know, kind of, kind of all the, his Swiss Army knife nine pitch variations or whatever the heck, um, causes him to, he, he's not going to have command and control of all of those at once. And he didn't in the minors, but the stuff was so good that the stuff that he did have control of, he could, he could miss a ton of bats. And so everyone's seeing the strikeout rate and the gaudy ERA and thinking, oh, well, this guy, number three pick overall, he's going to come up and be a super stud. Now he, he's walking the ballpark and, and it showed in his first couple stints, in 2012, 2013, they were small stints, but they were representative. He had no command and control, and it was obvious. Maybe he wasn't quite that bad. I think he combined for like a 550 ERA in those first eight starts between those two seasons, but he clearly wasn't ready. When he comes up last year, 
and just had much better command and control of his stuff. It still wasn't perfect, but for me, what I noticed in some of the starts that I'd see is if something wasn't working, and maybe it was just a variation of his fastball, maybe it was like the, the two-seamer variation. If that wasn't working that night, then he would shift back to the four-seamer because it was working. He, he started to figure out what was and wasn't working, and he would take it out of his arsenal. For me, he's a tough guy to study because he has so many variations on his pitches mm-hmm. that I'm like, well, what the hell did he just throw? But if you just kind of watch the game and and you're just kind of looking more i'm always looking at the glove so if i'm seeing the setups they're no longer setting outside with the with the fastball maybe he's not going with the sinker as much because it 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 drops okay cool he's going four seamer now oh the slider is not working fine he's going to go more curve or he's going to ramp it up and throw the cutter whatever the case i think he has nine different classifications in brooks so he's really tough to analyze but you just kind of have to watch him and kind of get a feel for for his game and i got a good feel when i was watching him a lot last year that he was learning better he's always been a smart guy he's always cared so much about his craft that he's really trying to learn it but i think it was a little bit bullheaded in i know better whereas obviously the pitching coaches are probably like sorry son we know better we're here to help you and he's finally letting that happen so yeah you have mickey calloway as your pitching coach shut up and listen let him tell you some things because combined with your knowledge it's going to work out well so we saw a nice step forward last year i think we're going to see an even bigger one this year um and again as i've said this on repeated podcasts radio spots whatever as a tigers fan i'm terrified of this cleveland indians club um yeah you should i mean i think there's very well you got a right to be i think there's a lot of good quantity across that lineup yeah uh and then with the potential for upside i mean we we haven't even talked about the francisco lindor wild card exactly that that could completely flip the the lineup on its head if he and he's not even Hitting is not his primary thing, but he's going to come up and field all those ground balls that those guys are inducing too. That 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 could be huge. But Jose Ramirez is actually getting some buzz uh, that has interested me. What kind of value do you have for that guy? Uh, not much. I mean, I think he's okay, but I think that the the, the uh, this, I just want more. I think the the, the bat's going to get knocked out of his hand too much, and okay. that's really my concern. Yeah, because I, I didn't have. Uh, I didn't have a great feel for him, and I saw he was being drafted in some leagues. You know, I wouldn't say early at all, just kind of a late round gamble. But I never even considered him a late round gamble. So I looked it up, and I was trying to look at him. I'm like, ah, uh, I'm not really seeing it. I, I see a, a modicum of pop given his size. He's very small, five nine, one sixty five, uh, but looks like a speed guy. Uh, I'm not. I'm just not seeing too much. Let me ask you this: as far as the pitchers go, and these and these later round guys, are you talking Trevor Bauer, Danny Salazar? Who do you like better? Oh, Salazar. Okay. Uh, th- and I figured you were going to go there, but I just wanted to see. And then, and I like Bauer. That's the thing. It's, that, it's no slight on Bauer. Exactly. It's it's not it's not a Bauer slam. It, it's it's a it's propping up Salazar. Do you see Gavin Floyd being anything, or does t- uh, uh, um, a favorite of mine and and others, TJ House, jump up and and take that slot sooner than later? I think that's House's job. I really do. I think that's House's job. I mean. Floyd, the curveball's nice, but there's, I mean, there's too much mileage on that arm, damage-wise. That's the thing that that you know I didn't get so freaked out about when they saw that they signed him with regards to House, because uh, 
you know, I just don't know that Gavin Floyd's going to give you much more than even a hundred innings, to be honest. Another guy who we didn't really talk about that I guess I, I, I could have gone away from Bauer. I think Cody Allen is ready to be a stud closer this year. Sure. I think he's going to be one of those superstar ones who gives you a crap ton of strikeouts with the amazing ratios. And then of course a boatload of saves because that team's going to be pretty good. I think he's somebody that if you don't get that first round, don't freak out. Guys like Mark Melanson and Cody Allen can be there to give you that that elite upside if you don't get your your Chapman, Jan, uh, Jansen, Holland, Kimbrell, etc. All right, let's move on to my Tigers now, and uh, it's an interesting crew again this year. It's, you know, they're, they're I think they're still you know the on paper favorites, but that doesn't matter. What kind of hitter do you like out of this club? Because it's basically a stars and scrubs lineup. The the uh, habitually underrated Rajai Davis. That's true. He really is. Because here's the thing last year. So Rajai Davis pretty much never gets drafted in the top 20 rounds, ever. I want to, and Even when we look at, let's see, and in, in, in uh, labor, Rajai Davis went in the, well, he actually went in the 14th round. So this was really the first year they did that, but this was a team that had a, clear need for stand Carlos Gomez and Jose Jose Reyes and didn't didn't draft anybody really else speedy so they took Rajai Davis but heading into the season let's say Rajai Davis typically never went that high Rajai Davis last year even though he didn't play as often as everybody else still earned you know if you went out and spent Billy Hamilton money last year Billy Hamilton in a standard 12-team mixed league earned $13 Rajai Davis earned 14 Raja Davis always gets his steals. Even if he doesn't play, dude gets his steals. And you know, I don't want, I don't want Raja Davis in the 14th round in, in a in a mix. But Raja Davis has value, and he's got a very low floor because he always, always gets his steals. And that's why when the rest of this lineup, there's no value. I mean, Kinsler's going to go where he goes. I, I don't buy. I'm looking at roster resource. I don't buy for a second. Anthony Go stays in that lineup. Uh, that's that's a better defensive player than an offensive player. I mean, Cabrera, Martinez, Martinez, Cespedes, none of these guys are coming at any kind of value. Um, the guy you're going to talk about, I believe, is going to come with – has some potential. But I'm looking at somebody oh. else who I can probably get. It's going to be Davis. I, I was did you think I was going to go with Castellanos? I did. Uh, I'm not. I'm actually. I was going to say Cespedes because I think there is a tinge of value, and it's not much, like you said, because it's stars and scrubs. Those stars generally go at cost. Cabrera, you know, falling down a little bit in the first round because there's some there's some injury news, but even you know he's still a first round pick. He went ninth in our draft. I think that's more of an anomaly. Barring some crazy news that comes out. In fact, there's going to be an update on Thursday. If that news is positive, you know. And, and, he, and he doesn't have a disastrous spring of, of news. He's still going to go very high. Um, I think Victor, same way. The, as the news gets better, he'll continue to kind of level back up. Suspect is for me, I still think that there there is room for growth here. I know that he had the first year that we saw that was you know kind of elite, took the, the, took the league by storm. And the next two years haven't been at that elite level. Terrible on base rates, et cetera. The one thing I look at, though, is every time, seemingly, and, not, and I guess not every time, it's not 100%, but oftentimes when Detroit picks up a major league asset, they get that next level of production out of them. So they are targeting guys that they see that they can do whatever sort of fix um, to maximize their production, and then all of a sudden they're better. Doug Fister, way better. Annabelle Sanchez right. finally has an elite year. Goes out, gets a big contract from the club. You know, health was an issue last year, but but Annabelle Sanchez was still very good when he pitched. 
I think Incespedes can come in, going to be part of that lineup. When that lineup is healthy, it's still very potent. And I think he can be that beast, that 30 homer beast. We haven't seen it yet. 26 is the max. But I think that he's going to have that big season. So I'm still really liking him. Like you said, though, there ain't a ton of value when you're talking 21st outfielder, 64th pick. But that's somebody I really like. To speak on Castellanos quickly, I think this is a guy who could take a huge step from what he did last year. He really held his own in his first full year. Not quite league average, but really started to to show some advancement in season that didn't always translate into the results. I watched virtually every Tigers game the same same way you do with the Rays, and you could tell this was a guy who was really figuring out different things about how he can approach different pitchers, what he needs to do in different counts, etc. I, I think not only can he have a nice year, but he could definitely move up from that eight spot a lot. You talk about roster resource having ghosts in that two spot. I definitely think that uh, Castellanos could eventually inhabiting that two spot, which would be a huge boon to his fantasy value if he ends up being this guy who's more of average than power. But uh, if he mixes it with some on base, then all of a sudden you're talking about a quality two hitter. And our twentieth, our twentieth round selection, and our twentieth round selection, which, and then we we had two guys we were talking about, Castellanos and Plouffe. We ended up getting them both. The value was just too good, and third base is still something you can trade, and that's why uh, two rounds apart. Exactly. We we took Han in the middle. We said, well, let's get Han. We could go Plouffe here, but let's get Han. And then when Plouffe was still there, we said, well, let's. Well, now we got to take him because now we got third base depth. Um, you know, if if maybe that turf does hurt Donaldson or the trade. That's why Fred Zinke was knocking on our door five minutes after the draft. Yes. All right. Who's your favorite pitcher at their current cost for this club? Uh, Shane. Oh, very nice. Love the strike. I love the strikeout rate. The potential there at the end of a you know the end of a draft where you're looking at everybody else. You know, Price Verlander. I, mean, I guess Verlander's coming at some kind of uh, value compared to last year. Uh, you know, Sanchez Verlander went late in labor too. Sanchez yeah. is very consistent. But I like Green as a, a late round guy. You know, if you're in a 15 team mixed league and looking very late, there's somebody in a 12 team AL. That's somebody that can be like your your maybe your fourth guy yeah. if you're going for six starting pitchers, but I feel I think it's a solid five for real and fantasy. No, I, I agree with you. And the, the, this guy fits that fits that mold I was talking about earlier, even better than somebody like Assessment. Assessment is an established quality middle of the lineup threat. Shane Green is a little bit more of an unknown. That's the kind of guy that they can pull that next level out of, work with, make him better, and he could be that next fister. I really liked that acquisition. I think that he's going to shock some folks. Very interested in Shane Green. Verlander's my pick. You're talking about he went round 16 in a 15-team mixed league. He's going much later this year. I'm not ready to, to, to dump him and just say that he's completely done. I think a lot of folks are. They're done. They got burned last year, and they're pissed about it. 454 ERA and a 140 whip. Not only that, but for 206 innings. So it was hard to cut him because he didn't have some big DL stint where you could say, fine, I'm out. You just kept waiting saying, oh, it'll get better. It'll get better. It'll get better. And it didn't. But – there were still bouts where the stuff was elite and you could still go out there and see him and be like, there it's, there's still something in there. And then the core surgery that we, that was talked about might have been undersold by, by, you know, uh, quite a bit as it turns out, because mm-hmm. when he, when he busted through spring training, uh, everyone, myself included thinks, Oh, he's all right. He's good to go. Let's get him back in that third round. That third round, that's a steal. He could be a first round guy. Are you kidding me? Yeah, right. He was a huge bust. I get it. But to drop then, you know, 
13, 14 rounds because of that. I just can't see. I know he's 32. I know he's getting older. But this isn't a fastball-only guy. It's not Lincecum either. He's not small. He's, he's, he's a well-built guy that he can hold up to this. The velocity can be down because he has great secondary stuff. I'm still willing to take a chance. There's upside here, um, which has never been the case for Verlander because you always have to pay such a high price for him. Now you actually have some upside. I'm going back to the well. Maybe I'm crazy. Maybe it's my Detroit bias. I'll freely admit that. But I'm, I'm willing to take that chance and go down with the, uh, go down with the ship. Can't argue. All right. Well, then that will uh, lead us into some questions. Right now, where are you drifting, drafting Miguel Cabrera? Or are you? Uh, it's a first-round cost. So where, where are I'll you? I'll maintain I'm not, I'm not taking him in the top 10. Okay. Uh, if, I was on a, if I was on a wheel, if I'm in a 15-team mix, if I'm on a wheel, I don't let Miguel Cabrera get out of the first round, but I'm not taking him in the top 10. Okay. That, I, that's fair. I, I'm, I'm taking him a little bit earlier than he went in labor, which I said was nine. But I don't know, you know, like Adam Jones went ahead of him. I, I'd still take him ahead of Adam Jones. But I don't know if I'd necessarily take him ahead of the other guys that are there. You know, the Goldschmidt, the Encarnacion, that's the, that's the easiest comparison because they're all first basemen. But Stanton and Gomez, no chance. I'd take those two way ahead of him. Uh, and then obviously Trout, McCutcheon, and Kershaw. How much of the 2014 season for either Martinez do you believe holds over? Um. I'm more I'm more inclined to believe in JD than I am Victor. I don't think the power holds for Victor, especially with the uh, with the with the knee that we've talked about the base. How that's probably going to take a little bit for him to catch up for him. I'm a little bit more believer in it when JD with the understanding that I know a lot of his stuff came early. You look at his his final numbers; they weren't as strong um, as the overall thing looked. But I'm a little more of a believer in JD just because uh, of the youth, and there could be a little more uh, you know a little more there. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I I buy JD more with the injury to Victor. That, that definitely has me thrown a bit. Um, if you're judging overall, like to where everybody was, because obviously you're going to be on one side or the other. It's not really in the middle with Victor. You're either buying or you're saying no way he's too old. It's not going to hold. I'm more toward the I'd still be buying in on him, but with the uncertain knee issue, I'm moving away and I'd be venturing toward the other Martinez um, in terms of. St- more stickiness from his 2014 mm-hmm. next up annabelle sanchez is he a bargain 46 starting pitcher off the board 185th pick he did have a 271 fip so if you're looking at the raw skills they were still good i think he had an uh a 334 era which was even that's still good but uh it, the 271 fip says hey he was even better than that but the strikeouts fell way down from from that from that career high in 2013 and it looks like that's probably just going to be a career high and not something that was a new normal for him yeah that's another guy five straight seasons of strikeout rate improvement and then 19 20 24 oh then now he dipped down to 20 27 so this is a guy that still struck out above the league average for starting pitchers in the past three seasons and last year he was right there on the even in a bad year you know, the, the league average was 19% for starting pitchers. He was at 19.8, so he was right there along that line. And he missed some time. I mean, let's not forget that exactly. he started 22, uh, 21 games. So he was probably pitching through injury for a little bit of that and then coming back for it. So I think there's a small bump in strikeout rate coming back for him. And, and when he's right, everything's there. The ratios are good. The ERA, is, it, it, even, at its, you know, even at its worst, is still going to be below four, but the ratios are there, the strikeouts are there. This is still this is still at least a, a, a two category pitchers. Yeah, this guy's a worthy gamble 
in a situation that we're talking about earlier with these late uh, or these leagues where you're not going to draft a whole bunch of guys early on with the starters and you're going to try to pile up a bunch of quality gambles later. That could be one of your – all right. And then um, actually, you know what? That, that, that's going to wrap it up. The final question was Alfredo Simon or, or Shane Green. The fact that you picked Green, I know that's going to be your choice. So uh, we're going to move on here. And in fact, since we are a little bit long-winded this morning, we're going to cut KC in Minnesota, push that to Tuesday with Eno because we have something we want to wrap up with, which are the Vegas over-unders. We love kind of talking about these. I think they do have, you know, kind of application, maybe not perfectly for fantasy, but, you know, this 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 podcast can extend out not only to fantasy, but those who do handicapping and, and, and DFS, et cetera. So I, want, I love talking about these. And yes. um, where, did you, where did you get these from? Oh, the Atlantis Casino, current as of the day before Valentine's Day. Yes, yeah, so a listener sent them to me. Let's start with the NL. And give me a couple of uh, of the ones that stand out to you, whether they're ones you want to bet over or under. What are maybe two that stand out to you right away? I'm not buying 74 wins for Atlanta. I don't care the pitching. I'm not buying 74 wins for them. I think that's aggressive. The 82 for the Marlins, I'll take the over. The 81 and a half, I'll take the over on that because of how bad Atlanta's going to be, how bad Philadelphia is going to be. I mean, I'll take that. And then. Um, 87 and a half of the Cardinals, I'll take the under. Those are three that really stood out for me. Int- uh, very interesting picks there. I, I like those picks. Man, it's, it, this is tough. They, they have some good numbers. They do have some good numbers here. In the, in the National League, boy, I think, I think I'd be inclined to take the under for the Rockies at 72 and a half. I just, or not the, uh, the, the D-backs, excuse me, at 72 and a half. I just don't think that they've got the pitching to really do much i'm i'm not that impressed with this club so i think i would it's hard to go under when the number's so low but i just i don't like that that ball club they have some very intriguing hitters goldschmidt obviously a stud uh you know trumbo and tomas look like they got some good power i like aj pollock but you know the rest of that lineup david peralta tuffy Goswitch, not a real person I'll never believe that he is. That's a made-up name completely. That's a creative player from a video game. Uh, Chris <laughs> Owings, Aaron Hill. I've liked them in the past. I do like Owings again this year, but they're far from guarantees. And, and Hill's getting old, so you can't rely on him. And then, like I said, the pitching. Helixson, Colmenter, Ruby De La Rosa, Alan Webster, Trevor Cahill. Ugh. So I'm going to take the under on them. And you know what? Let's see here. I'm, if I'm going to take an over, I think I might go – you know, everyone's going to be over on the Padres. They had to bump them up big time. 84, that's an interesting number. I, I, I'm actually going to say the Mets will beat 500. They might only go 82 and 80, but I only, that's all I need. They got them for 81 wins. I'll take the over for the opposite reason that I hate the Diamondbacks. I love their pitching in, in, in New York with the Mets. You know, it's surprising with, it's surprising with that Padre number only at 84. I know they're given, you know, because of the Dodgers at 91. Yeah. But they have the Giants one game higher. And then you've got those two awful teams in Arizona and Colorado. I'm surprised the Padres are only 84. That's true. Maybe, maybe they're, well, maybe they're down on them in Atlantis and they want people to come in and go over, 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 over. And they think they're actually going to be more of like, they're not quite ready yet, an 82 win team or something. So, uh, but yeah, you're right because those three teams, the Dodgers, Giants, and Padres could really beat up on the D-backs and Rockies and kind of boost their records. I, w- I don't even want to say artificially, but just kind of get that in division boost. So that'd be very interesting. But, uh, so I'm going Mets over. 
D-backs under. You're going Cardinals under. Um, you said Marlins over and the Braves under. So we both took two unders for teams that were already scheduled to be crap, but that's how much <laughs> we don't like the Braves and the Diamondbacks. Let's shift over to the AL. And uh, Oh, for those wondering, Nationals are the top for the NL at 93. Uh, Jason mentioned the Dodgers at 91. Over in the AL, not nearly as high. Angels are tops at 87.5. Tigers come in next at 86.5. Red Sox, very interestingly, in a worst-to-first situation, are now the uh, AL East favorite at 86. So give me a couple teams that you like in the AL. I'm not even being a homer, but the Rays at 77.5, dude, I am all over that. You look at the you know the, the, the BP projections, had them as an 86-win team, mm-hmm. and that's before even factoring Jaso into the lineup. They still had DeJesus at DH. So either that projection is way off. Or something. I don't see the Rays as a sub-500 team, and I'm not even, again, I'm not even trying to be a homer. We talked about how that that defense has improved. I think the, the lineup balance has improved. That I, I would take the over on, absolutely. Um, the uh, the White Sox at 82, I think there's some value there. Because I think that's an I think that's an 85-win team. It really depends on how soon they call up Rodon uh, for me. And then another one, the Orioles. The okay. Orioles at 84 and a half, I'm, I'm taking the under on that. And I, I, I understand that. And I know that they keep getting picked on every year. And I think they're even kind of rallying around it saying nobody ever picks us. That's fine. But, uh, this year with the offseason that they had, I just don't necessarily see it. I, I wasn't one of those who was way off them last year, but for this year particularly, I'm just not seeing it. And, and, you know, I see certain aspects. I think Gaussman obviously takes a big step forward, and I've always liked Tillman, but that doesn't mean Tillman is necessarily a frontliner. And then the offense, they let it erode, and they didn't really do anything about it. So now they're right. be- they're betting on the return for Chris Davis, Matt Wieters, and Manny Machado, that they need all three of them to return or it doesn't work, as opposed right. to the- their returns being a bonus. Their returns are actually their offseason. That, that, that's to, all they're replace, considering. I mean, yeah, they're, I mean, they're, they're counting on bounce back from those guys. Didn't do anything to replace Cruz's bat in the lineup. At all. Um, didn't do anything to replace Marcakis. Say what you will about Marcakis, but at least he set a table. And he plays there's every single day. There's not a leadoff day. hitter. And there's not a leadoff. I mean, right now, Deaz is projected as leadoff, really? Yeah, and yeah. then you look, if you're going to count on the bounce back from those other guys, then you have to be willing to admit that there's a, a drop off for Steve Pierce. Definitely. So some of that, some of that's balanced out. I, I, like the the pickup of, of Snyder, but there's some limitations to him, and you know that's it. I mean, I, I don't buy 84 and a half wins. I would take the uh, take the under by like two games on this team. All right, some clubs that I like. Um, I like the Blue Jays over 83 and a half. That one's that one's pretty close. Uh, you know, I, I'll admit that. But I'm, I'm that kinda, bullpen though, man. That middle that middle relief. Oof. It, and it, it's worth. So I'm betting on that team. That would be one of my sketchier ones. I named them first because of the order it's in. But that that would be one of my lower dollar ones. I just think if I want to play playing over on a team that's already scheduled to be pretty good, it would be them. Um, way under on the Royals at 83. I think that's like yes. a 79 win club, maybe even fewer. Uh, the BP Pakota had them at 72 and 90. And, you know, I've been beating that drum since October, pretty much since the last pitch of game seven. I said, this team's going to fall off because the rest of the AL Central is on the come. And then they, the White Sox, this was before the White Sox made a single move, uh, before the Indians did anything. I said that the AL Central is on the come. Pair that with the fact that they got nine war from three relievers. There's no chance of that happening again. And I just, I don't buy that. I, I just, 
that I don't think they're going to sustain. I think the Royals fall way off. 83, I'd put the house on that one. Um, that will, that will definitely come back to bite me because I just said that on air <laughs> that I will put the house on it. Uh, let's see. Other, oh, Rangers. Good thing you're moving soon. <laughs> exactly. I'll, I'll put the same house on the Rangers over 70. Uh, six and a half. I think that they're going to bounce back nicely. Not, maybe not be a stud team, but 76 and a half. You don't have to be a stud team to bounce back from that. I think the injuries ravage that club. I, I, I think basically just being healthier is an easy route to kind of beating that because they, they could be an 80 win team and that's without anything particularly special happening. Then if you factor in some of the special stuff that could happen, they could crush that before freaking, you know, mid August if, 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 if things go really really well uh let's see i had one more what what was it no maybe it was just those three i think i think that's it so it was if i was ranking them it would be royals rangers blue jays um and then yeah i'm I'm gonna stick with that astros at 73 and a half i'm I'm tempted to say over you know that i'm surprised that they got them losing four more games than last year when i think they've made some decent improvements again i don't think it's all going to come together right away for them to be a contender but i just don't think they're the doormat anymore uh, but if you're gonna give, so if you're gonna give, let's say we give uh, four wins to the Ranger or five wins to the Rangers, that's true. They got five hundred somewhere. Yeah, if you're gonna give five wins to the, each team, let's put the Astros at seventy-eight and a half and the Rangers at eighty-one and a half. Where do you take ten wins from besides the Royals? <sighs> or do you t- take all ten from the Royals? Well, I, I take a lot of them from the Royals, but I might take some. Who else should I take? That, that's good because you got to do that exercise here. You can't just go putting everyone over, over, over because then the, the wins don't add up. I'd probably take a couple from the Mariners here, 85. I don't know. I'm still a little – I don't know. I like that club though, so I don't want to be pessimistic on them. Maybe the Red Sox. I, I'm not buying 86. No, I'm, I'm – I, I, I didn't want to be the person to say that. But, yeah, yeah. Okay. G- give me Red Sox <laughs> and Royals. I'll get my 10 wins from them. I'll, I'll go five apiece on those. Maybe even seven and three. Only three wins from the Red Sox but then seven from the Royals because I'm really down on them. That's where I'll get my 10 wins and, and give them to the Rangers and, and Astros there. Um because, yeah, I still think that division is going to be tough because the A's were one I was actually considering saying over, which I never thought I would come close to saying a couple months ago. But at 82 and a half, I could actually – I feel like I could make a case for over. I'm not going to do it because I don't feel strongly about it. But it's crazy that the offseason that they've had, that projected lineup that they had in like late December that had Nick Punto in it that we were yeah. all laughing at. Now you look at it and you're like, oh, OK. Well, I guess they did Let's- have a plan. Let's bring it full circle as a close, getting back to our point with Cole Hamels earlier. There are 10 teams in the American League projected to be 500 or better. That, that's kind of where I see this running around. And there are not, there are, uh, nine, nine in the, in the NL. But when I'm worried about Cole Hamels is going to be traded in a tough luck league, 10 teams, only the Yankees, Rays, Rangers, Astros, and Twins are projected to finish below 500 by these odds. So you look at payroll teams who can pay. The Tigers are there. The Angels are there. The Red Sox are there. Uh, the Blue Jays, if they want to pay, are there. Those are four big payrolls right there. If the yep. White Sox want to try to get involved, I don't think they can. But if there are four big payrolls in the AL that could take on Cole Hamels. Now, the Tigers would be a bit of a risk because of the big contracts that are, they're already carrying yes. for some of their older guys. So, and it, how off, you know, how much more can they keep burning the, burning the future? The Angels don't have a deep farm system. They're trying to rebuild that farm system. And that's what gets you back to Boston. Yep. Yeah, that's true. And then all of a sudden, if you put them on at 86, 
and you put the bet on now and then they go get a Hamels, you feel so much better. Because if, if they got him projected for 86 and if, if uh, Pakoda has him projected for 87 wins with this crew and then you add a frontline ace starter, then you're feeling great about the bet. So, yeah, that that'd be the risk of, of doing anything with a Red Sox bet right now um, on the negative side. You just don't know what kind of moves that they're going to make. So that that's why I guess you'd have to be careful to go in hot with an under right now. Mm-hmm. I love over-unders, though. They're, they're a lot of fun. I know Jonah Carey, also a big fan of them. He usually does uh, a podcast with uh, uh, with Gil Alexander, uh, be, beating, the, be, beating the book, excuse me, um, where they go over his top three favorite picks, which is always a must-listen. So... I think that's going to wrap it up for us, Jason. I want to let everyone know, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes, The Sleeper in the Bus. Give us that sweet five-star rating. Or you know what? If you if you don't feel great about it, give, give us the one-star like that one guy did. But I doubt that you listened all the way to the end here and you feel like it's a one-star podcast. You can hit us up on Twitter, at Spore, at Jason Collette. That's C-O-L-L-E-T-T-E. Better get that E at the end or some other guy, some musician dude is probably going to get the note. And, uh, and I hope just, to meet that guy one day. It would be great, wouldn't it? If you, if you, it would. If you'd be like, hey, man, we've been going around this whole time. Do you ever get baseball notes that you're unaware of? He's like, yeah, do you ever get mu- musician notes? You're like, no, they never confuse me for you, dude. I mean, I met the international recording superstar Eric Hutchison this year. Oh. So maybe, maybe I can meet the, uh, the Canadian uh, recording superstar Jason Collette sometime. <laughs> that would be fantastic. All right, Jason, we will be back in a week. Uh, or less than then, because we'll we'll do, we'll do Sunday next week to talk more. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure what we'll have on store because I don't know what division we're going to have. We'll, we'll surprise them, but we'll figure out something. We could talk about. about we could talk about this player's report of the camp and that player's report of the camp. And this oh, player yeah. looks like he's in the best shape best of his shape life. Of life, yes, yes. Oh God, those are the best. Or, I, I hate I hate this week on Twitter. It's all going to be this guy's report of the camp. Like, gee, thanks. Coming in to steal 25 bases this year, two big, big, big sluggers who are like, nah, I'm going to steal this year. Or, or, or the, the other version of that, the new version of that is already out once this year. It's, it's guys who get eaten alive by the shift saying they're going to bunt. Chris Davis is first on board this year. Uh, it was a story on Hot Stove this morning saying that he's going to, he's going to bunt to beat the shift. I'll believe it when I see it. Yes. All right, Jason, we'll be back in a week. I'll talk to you then. All right, man. See you. Bye. Thank you.